Mary Beard is the best-selling author of SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. And she's also the author of Women in Power and Confronting the Classics, among other books. She's joining us here today on Poured Over to talk about her newest book, 12 Caesars, Images of Power from the Ancient World to the Modern from Princeton University Press. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. This book, 12 Caesars, started as a series of lectures that you delivered in Washington, D.C., in 2011. Can we talk about how those lectures came about and then how you turned those lectures into this beautiful book? (laughs) Yes, well, I'm going to be absolutely truthful. I got invited to do the series of lectures without specifying any subject. And I said, yes, it sounded absolutely gorgeous. You know, you you get a few weeks at the National Gallery in DC and an office and working there, it's marvellous. You know, so I said, yes. But of course, what happens is that at a certain point, you have to choose a subject for the lectures. It's easy to say yes in principle, but then you've got to actually do them, right? And they have to advertise them. And I went really up to the line on this. And I kept getting, you know, rather well, increasingly pressing emails from the people in DC saying, well, you know, perhaps you could give us a title now. And I went out to lunch with a friend of mine and he said, you know, he knew about these lectures and said, you know, how's the planning going? And I said, look, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to lecture about. And he said, let me tell you, it's DC. All the people in DC, they're only interested in one thing, you know, they're interested in power, right? So you've got to do the 12 Caesars. <laughs> to start with, I thought, oh, gosh. And then I thought, no, look, over the last few years, I've thought not just about how Roman emperors, the first, the first 12 of whom we call the 12 Caesars, I've thought not just about how they were represented in the Roman world, but I've also thought about how they appear in film, in modern art, in cartoons. It was a bit of a dare. I can do something really interesting about the long history of how you represent emperors and why on earth we still do. So it came about in a kind of desperate way. (laughs) I was really pleased in the end. You know, it was some of the best years of my life looking at these things. But the origin of it was was a bit desperate. (laughs) So how do you adapt a lecture that's delivered orally in front of a crowd and turn it into this beautiful object that we have? Well, I think that's where you've got the answer to why did it take you 10 years to do it? (laughs) Because the lectures were given a decade ago. You know, I think the problem is, as you hint really, that delivering a lecture is just a very different thing from writing a chapter in a book or writing a whole book. And what you do when you're in front of an audience, the kind of twists and turns that you can make, the way you can say, hey, let's stop there. Do you remember what I showed you last time? Which is fun when you're face to face with people. That is just very irritating when you're writing a book. So in some ways, although some of the main central elements remain, some of the main examples, some of the ancient sculpture that I used, the modern paintings, the things I got very interested in, they're all there, but they've actually, I mean, I think the truth is, been completely disassembled and put back together in book form. In fact, anybody, you know, once when they read the book to go and look what the lectures were like, they can still find it on the National Gallery website and they'll see how very, very different they are. In uh, 12 Caesars, in the introduction, you write, this is a book both about emperors and about emperors in quotation marks, the inextricable two-way influence between the old and the new. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? 
I think that one thing that you have to do when you think about any images of Roman emperors, but modern ones perhaps especially, is you have to let go of your pedantry a bit, you know. I'm an academic and I I do see quite a lot of reasons for getting your facts right. But the truth about these emperors and the images of these emperors is that they're much messier than you'd ever imagine. That people in the Renaissance identify a particular sculpture as a particular emperor. We now know that it couldn't possibly be, (laughs) but nevertheless, that's what they think, and they replicate that, in a sense, make that all over again, even though it's false, the way that we think about the emperor. Well, let's say Julius Caesar. I mean, Julius Caesar is a great case. There's hardly any ancient sculptures that we can firmly identify, certainly as a contemporary portrait of Julius Caesar. And yet I think that if we close our eyes, we all have a sort of image of him as kind of slightly sunken cheek, slightly large Adam's apple, a bit balding, bit sinister looking. And it's a really powerful image that we have. And, you know, we find it everywhere from movies, you know, to how to show a Julius Caesar to, you know, I was brought up on the cartoon series of uh, Asterix the Gaul. And, you know, that's how Julius Caesar comes into Asterix the Gaul. And it is a very powerful and in some ways true image. But I say it's in quotation marks because you couldn't say that it was actually based on any image of Julius Caesar at all. And so you're always working in a kind of sort of bifocal, ambidextrous-like way. You're looking for real images, you're looking at coins, but then you're also looking at how we all imagine them. Of course, some we don't imagine at all any longer. <laughs> and you know, the, the one thing I, I think I'm very clear about in the book is that uh, you don't actually have to start off with any knowledge of these guys, um, you know, more than you might have picked up from seeing a few cartoons of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. So this isn't a, an expert's book. But you become an expert, I hope, after you've read the book. And I, I, mean, I suppose I also hope that once you've got some of these images, real, true, in quotation marks, not in your head, I think my pledge to you is that whenever you go to an art museum, you'll have a much better time because you'll suddenly spot them everywhere. <laughs> that was one of the things I learned reading this book is that the use of the Roman coin, the image of the Roman coin in European portraiture. I'd never really thought about it. And then, of course, after I read the chapter, I was like, oh, that makes pots and pots of sense. But is our knowledge of Rome and Roman emperors and the Roman Empire, are those images based more in interpretations from the Renaissance than they are from the actual Roman sources? They're a wonderful mixture. And I mean, I think part of the fun, and this is also part of the kind of you have to let yourself go a bit line, is that, yes, an enormous amount of kind of influence on our images of the Roman world and and these Roman people comes through the Renaissance. But the Renaissance wasn't inventing it completely new. They were also looking back to ancient texts to ancient sculptures, some of which they misidentified, some of which we misidentify. And so it's it's a wonderful, rather exciting amalgam 
of all sorts of influences. And, you know, there are some characters and famous sculptors who come in to take very high prominence for a while, where everybody says, that is the best ancient image of X, Julius Caesar, that we have. And then 50 years later, that image has been overthrown and we've chosen another one. So it's a kind of marvellously shifting set of categories which I think makes it more exciting. (laughs) And it is misidentification. It's not that we're looking at fakes or forgeries or anyone trying to pass things off, as it were. It it really is just genuinely we don't know. There's the whole spectrum, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is a question of not being able to identify an ancient sculpture or to re-identify an ancient sculpture. Other times it's pretty clear that there were guys in the 17th and 18th centuries chiseling away to make an entire fake for some rather gullible, often English milords who were trying to buy them in Rome. And I think these are the most intriguing bit. They're also sculptures that we have no clue, actually, whether they are ancient or whether they are 17th, 18th century. There's a marvellous image of a late Second century Roman emperor, the emperor Commodus, a nasty piece of work who was the kind of anti-hero of the movie Gladiator. There's a wonderful sculpture of him in the Getty Museum in Malibu. And we still don't really know whether he's modern, you know, 17th, 18th century, or whether he's second century. And the general view now is that he's probably ancient, but he's been all around the Getty, according to what people think that he he is, you know, sometimes being a prized piece of work of the 18th century, other times being a prized piece of work of the second century. And of course, that's liable to be the case because ancient sculpture is made out of the same materials as modern sculpture. Modern sculptors use the same kind of tools as ancient sculptors did. So it is actually very hard to have any clear diagnostic clues or keys. You know, you can't analyse it with some clever chemical and decide. You just have to look at it and people differ. You've always been very clear, though, that you engage in history and that it's a conversation, that there is nuance, that we need to challenge some of the conventional wisdom. I guess is the phrase I'm looking for. And I want to go back to Caesar for a second because everyone has an opinion about Caesar. He's essentially a pop culture icon at this point, whether it's modern television or modern film or certainly Shakespeare's plays and whatnot. And the reason I want to come back to him, or part of the reason I want to come back to him, is the idea that all of these images represent a story that's being told. And the question is, who's telling the story? And you mentioned that Caesar is the first emperor who put his image on coins in the Roman Empire. And this then goes from there. But we're not really clear who's carving the images, who's making them available, who's decided that that, in fact, is the image. You have a great story about the head that they find in the River Rhone at Arles. And a Frenchman says, wait a minute, this is wild. And he says something very funny, and I'll let readers discover it on their own. But you even think that this is not a head of Caesar. So how did we get here? Just to go back one stage, I think a lot of people, me included, walk around art museums and we look at lineups of Roman busts named with little labels with some emperor's name. And first of all, we glaze over. They're not exactly the stars of the modern art gallery. That's part of what my book wants to try to do to kind of bring these wallflowers, you know, into the spotlight. But what 
nobody sort of ever tells you is that all these busts were identified not because there was any label that came down for antiquity on them. You know, there was no carved you know, letters at the bottom saying, this is Julius Caesar. They're identified by mixing and matching and looking at them and comparing them to other things that have been identified as Julius Caesar. So there is a kind of black hole at the centre of this. And that black hole is surrounded by some things we really know very well. Julius Caesar was the first Roman to try to flood the world with his image. What does it mean to be an autocrat? Well, Caesar sees that you've got to get your image out there. And he's very modern in that sense. I mean, although he was not around for very long, people often forget that his period of sole rule, he isn't really an emperor. He rules sort of alone for only a few years. But one thing that it's absolutely certain that he does is try to make himself ubiquitous. So being an autocrat means having your face everywhere. Partly that's on the coins. Now, that is a named image. Julius Caesar's name is on the coins. But he's also doing it with sculpture. There's you know, a very straightforward idea in a kind of world before our own sort of mass media. What you want to do is you want to put your face into the field of vision of people in the Roman Empire. And he certainly does that. <laughs> One of the main changes that Julius Caesar made, well, actually, probably that's in terms of Roman culture, that probably comes pretty clearly near the top of the list. And yet, as you say, dig around a bit and there's more black holes because we have no idea who made any of these things. We have no idea who decided that Julius Caesar's head you know, would go on the coins, for example, or that Julius Caesar would ship off sculptures to all around Italy and further afield. You know, and you can, you can have fantasy imaginings about Caesar and his mate sitting down to dinner and saying, you know, hey, I've got a brilliant idea. I've got a brilliant idea. Let's put your head on the coins. And that may indeed be what happened. But the processes of this are just lost to us. And they're not just lost to us for Julius Caesar. I think it's fair to say we have no idea who it was who sculpted any of the ancient portraits of Roman emperors anywhere or at any period. So it's a kind of strange, again, sort of slightly fragile ground to be standing on because and we call these things portraits and they are portraits, but rather modern romantic view of a portrait, which really stresses the relationship between the artist, whether they're a sculptor or a painter, and the sitter, and thinks about what kind of image of the sitter the artist captures. We can't talk like that in relation to the ancient world. We guess these guys have models. We don't imagine that Julius Caesar spent hours and hours and hours in Rome, you know, modeling for people. I mean, he might have done, but we don't imagine that he did. We imagine that somebody who knows who made a, a terracotta or a wax model, which other people copied. You go back and you're looking for what we think of as portraiture, and you don't find it. There's a sort of vacuum at the centre of this, although there's hundreds of these images being produced. All very baffling. <laughs> at one point, it's common to find wrinkles and much more sort of standard, unadorned features in the sculpture, in the coins and whatnot. And then when Augustus comes to power, 
as Octavian. The style changes and suddenly everything becomes very youthful and very kind of stylized. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm perhaps underselling what we know because, mm-hmm. as you say, one thing we can see very clearly for all the bits of ignorance that float around, we can see that these portraits change. If you go back before the period of one-man rule in Rome, before Julius Caesar, by and large, it's not entirely true, but by and large, Roman men, and it is men, are represented in a rather over-kind-of-life-like, over-realistic, in our terms, style. They don't have many portraits. They don't kind of flood the world like Julius Caesar and his successors do. But they're wrinkly, sunken cheeks. People assume they're realistic because in our eyes they look so horrible, actually. (laughs) Which I think nobody could want to be represented like they were about sort of 95 and not really long for this world unless that is how they looked. And that is usually thought to be, quite rightly, I think, in general, the preferred style of the time up to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's a bit on the cusp. He's pretty wrinkly, actually. But as soon as you get to the first bona fide real emperor, I mean, Julius Caesar is sort of between the Roman sort of democracy and the empire on the margins there. As soon as you get to Augustus, and pretty much ever after, the style changes to be a kind of idealising perfection and youthful. And I think people say, did Augustus look like that? Well, one of the reasons that you can say pretty certainly no is that he ruled for over 40 years and he looks the same, as far as we can tell, for all the portraits produced over his reign. So, you know, something funny is going on. You know, even our queen is at least allowed to age a little, not as much as she does in real life, but her portrait changes. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of get the feeling that Augustus is, it's not, I think, that he's just a hypocrite, but he's trying to present a particular image of himself to people who honestly are never likely to have seen him. Okay, in the city of Rome, they might have, but in the far-flung expanses of the Roman Empire, they wouldn't. And he's creating an image of youthful perfection. And That is what most emperors in the ancient world tend to follow. Very occasionally, they go against it. And after the civil wars that followed the demise of Nero, and with the beginning of a new dynasty, the new dynast Vespasian goes back a bit to that wrinkly style, as if he's saying, look, that first dynasty, they weren't real Romans. (laughs) You know, I am making Rome great again. I'm going back to the Republican traditions. And so he appears to change the template a little bit, but it soon goes back to this image of perfection. Although by the time you get to the second century AD, for reasons that nobody has ever explained, from the Emperor Hadrian onwards, they start to have beards. And we have no idea. Not many of these come in my book because I tend to concentrate on the first 12 so people don't have too many different emperors to deal with. But in the second century AD, you have a whole series throughout that century of bearded emperors. Why that is, you know, whether it is that they just had beards or whether they decided that that kind of slightly austere bearded philosophical look might be what they wanted to adopt, we don't know. You have an interesting question when you're talking about all this 
and you say, what constitutes a likeness has always been one of the big questions of art history and theory from Plato to Ai Weiwei. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the connection from Plato to Ai Weiwei, but I'd like to talk to you about this a little more because I do think in many ways from what I've learned from your book, it sounds like controlling the emperor's image was a form of propaganda. It was a form of call it press relations before we had these things. So is it just solely about the power or are they trying to also cement their legacy? Can they separate the two? I think if we go back to the emperors themselves, Mm -hmm. it was an imaginative attempt to transmit their power. I mean, I think we often, when we look at these series of emperors, this is why we walk past them, frankly, in art museums, is that that particular image of political power has become so normalised for us. Basically, we have a slightly different version of it with men in suits, but it's very much how we have come to assume Roman power looks. It's a kind of conservative version of that. And, you know, we think of it as a bit uninteresting, I think. And I suppose what I want to say is, look, go back to... 10 BC or 20 AD. And this is a radical new version of what it is to be a leader. When you see that image of Augustus or Tiberius or Caligula, it knocks you in your face. It's new. It isn't a wrinkly old man. This is power representing itself in a completely different way. It must have been gobsmacking to see that. It almost upsetting, I think, to see that new image of power. So, And I think one of the things one has to say is that, yes, it is about propaganda, be a shorthand term for it, but it is so successful an innovation in propaganda that we now take it absolutely for granted. And imagine what it would feel like to think this was new. Then I think... All kinds of different images. As as time goes on and people in the Renaissance and later want to recreate for themselves, particularly in painting, but not always in painting, images of emperors, they have to ask themselves what it is to create a likeness of someone who's been dead for a millennium or more. And what are they doing? Are they creating portraits? You know, how far can we go with the idea of the portrait? You know, how far do we feel comfortable in thinking that these are entirely fictional creations? And yet fictional creations which have truth in, in other ways. You know, we can imagine a painter thinking, and they've done it right up to the 20th century and beyond. What does a true image of Nero look like? So partly because because nobody actually knows what Nero looks like, I think it exposes our idea of portraiture, of making a likeness, of recreating somebody in very vivid terms, actually. People argue about, you know, in some ways, that's a bit mad because they're arguing about whether this is a good representation of someone when we don't know what the someone looked like anyway. But what you're doing is you're arguing about what is it to see the past. This is especially true for the women who are represented in Roman sculpture. And there are no Roman empresses, as you point out, but also they're not even given their own individual images. There's simply one sort of template that's repeated again and again for whoever 
what do we call them? The consort? The <laughs> Well, of course, we call them empresses the wives. Because, because it's so inconvenient to call them anything else. You know, you're right to say there's no such thing as an empress in Rome, but we kind of tend now to lump together the sisters and the wives and the daughters and the aunties. And, you know, I think we've talked so far in a way that makes it sound as if you're looking at Roman images of power, all you're looking at is blokes. You know, this is dead white European males. And that is not true. But you're right to say that in the ancient world itself, there is a degree of stereotyping in the empress. The women are stereotyped even more. The only thing really that differs as time goes by is they have different hairstyles. There are different fashions in hairstyles. So you get some very piled up hairstyles at the end of the first century, etc., etc. And that is, frankly, how they are now dated, right? By their hairdos. And I suppose I've got two things to say about that. One is, I think that's doing a very important job in Roman power. You know, Rome is a pretty misogynistic, society. It's also a society which is, like many misogynistic societies, are pretty worried about women. It's worried about women being out of control. It's worried about the sexuality of women. It's worried about how do I know my heir is my heir because what has my wife been doing on her nights off? And one of the things that these images do again and again, I think, is try to counter the stories that you hear in plenty in Roman literature that women are always up to no good. So these official images of Roman empresses make them look like sort of goddesses, uh, but certainly not like anybody who would do anything naughty. These are women who will not upset the stability of the empire. What will they do? They will breed legitimate heirs for the emperor. It's interesting, of course, is that when you get then to the later images of empresses, let's call them, let's say from the 17th century through particularly to the 19th century, they use these women in much more variegated and various different ways. Partly, they try to see through the images of perfection that the ancient sculpture shows. And in painting, they will cast the women as the dangerous, sexually incontinent women that we read about in Roman literature. And I think you can you know, go and look at what the early 20th century decadent artist in the UK, Aubrey Beardsley, does with images of Claudius's wife, Messalina, coming home from the brothel where she was supposed to have spent her evenings. So what the modern artist kind of almost tries to counter the images of perfection that you see in ancient sculpture. I think the other thing that modern artists do is they use women as a lens through which to see the corruption of the Roman court and Roman autocracy. They focus on the women who are the victims of the misuse of Roman power. So you have the virtuous elder Agrippina cradling the ashes of her husband Germanicus, who has been nastily poisoned on the orders of the Emperor Tiberius. And so you're seeing these women as, in a sense, a canvas on which you can see what the human cost of empire is. There are some truly, truly awful medieval paintings. I mean, you know, scarcely lookable at really, of Nero's mother, who was eventually murdered by Nero. 
And the medieval paintings show him dissecting her body. It's gruesome, but in a sense, it's not just gruesome. It's actually thinking about, I think, the way these women become the victims in the bloodiest sense of Roman megalomaniac power. But I think with the empresses, you get a very big clash, really, between how ancient official artists want them to appear and, well, how modern artists undermine that image. One of the things I really appreciate about your work when I'm reading you is the fact that you ask so many good questions and you question everything. And that's not often how the classics are presented, whether it's a book or a lecture or a class or what have you. But there's a really great question that you ask towards the end of the book. And, and it really does sort of sum up 12 Caesars. And you say, but what of the use of images of emperors and their imperial stories in bigger debates about autocracy and corruption or in facing more fundamental questions about the nature of representation itself? And we've touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the artistic question of what a likeness is. But you are actually asking much larger questions about representation and power. Yes. Yes, I think I am. And I think that I'm trying to follow that through from antiquity to think what happens? What is the artist doing and for whom when he, not always he, but I'm afraid most of my artists are male, when he faces the question of how you represent somebody who you don't know. What is the boundary between representation and fiction and imagination? And how do these artists talk about that? And how do they influence what we think of as a representative strategy? You know, they are responsible for us seeing these historical characters as we do. They're more responsible than the ancient texts. You know, many more of us have seen these images than have read the lives of Suetonius. And so it's actually the degree zero almost of representation, because in some ways, these emperors don't exist outside how we choose to recreate them. And I think that that's kind of very heady mixture when you think about representation. And I think what I suppose I'm trying to say in the book is, again, I'm constantly wanting to unseat our sort of complacency about these images. We think of them as obvious. We think of them as not very interesting. We think of them as, well, if they're doing a job now, we think of them as, you know, a badge of power. What did you do in the 17th century if you wanted to show that you were on the up? Well, okay, have a series of busts of Roman emperors. That may be true. You know, sometimes I'm sure it's true. But actually, one of the things it's doing, and the whole tradition of doing that, is exploring the limits of representation. It's saying, how do we recreate these people? And one of the things I think is so exciting is they come in really, really different forms. You know, we have white marble bust in our mind. You know, close your eyes, what do you see? Roman emperor, white marble bust. You get them in waxwork, you get them in chocolate, you get them in gaudily painted ceramics, you get them in silver. And it's really parading a version of what you can do with artistic invention. So I'm sort of always trying to go against the line of, oh God, this is boring, you know? So what? Oh, Roman emperors, you know, let's come on, let's walk on a bit quickly. Let's get to something more interesting. I'm going to say, stop and look at these. I suppose one of the things I'm also doing is trying to 
bring to the fore different forms of representation apart from marble busts that, again, we don't pay much attention to. I mean, modern audiences now are pretty blind to tapestry. When you walk through the tapestry galleries in the Vatican, you know, I'm afraid you walk pretty quickly. You know, you're going on to the Sistine Chapel. You're not stopping at the tapestry. We don't really look at coins very hard. You know, you go into a coin gallery, you might look at one or two, but again, you're moving on to something more interesting. And I'm wanting to say, look, what we're doing here is thinking about all sorts of different forms of representation that is really worth looking at and thinking about. I have a couple of questions from folks here, and they relate to representation, but not entirely as it appears in this book. My colleague, Laura, was hoping that you could speak a little bit to the future of diversity in classics, both what gets studied, who gets to study it, because you have made a retirement gift to Cambridge, the school where you currently teach, to fund scholarships for classic students from underrepresented groups Mm. and backgrounds. Look, I think it's very important that classics diversifies. I think it's very important that most university subjects diversify. I I don't think classics is the only villain here. And I feel very strongly that the subject would be more interesting. You know, let's just be selfish. The subject, apart from fairness, the subject would be more interesting if it was more diverse. And I think that, you know, fairness is an important part. And in my lifetime, I've lived through an increasing fairness to women in the subject. You know, we're not equal yet, but there's an increasing fairness. And I think that that has been hugely enriching in what people have said about the ancient world. And I think that the same is true of other forms of diversity. And I feel very strongly that I don't want to be too breastbeating about this. I think that you can get too worked up by what a toxic subject classics has been. I mean, classics has legitimated some pretty nasty ideologies. There is no doubt about that. Absolutely no doubt about that. Fascism used classical imagery, you know, as its poster boy. That is true. I think it's also true that classics has been extraordinarily radical and liberalising across history. You know, even just to go back to the Roman emperors, you know, in a way that we can't now really, I think, internalised very easily. The idea that the study of the classical world was actually a way of countering some of the dominance of the Catholic Church, for better or worse, is something we've almost forgotten. The secularization of classics, it was an extremely important within the history of the West. You know, we shouldn't tell ourselves off too much, but we should do something better. And I think we should also use the imagery of the ancient world to help us do that. You know, I, I think it is one of the questions I've been talking about, white marble busts. And we know, although it has largely, largely been eroded away, that many of these busts were painted, that our kind of sort of pure white image of classical sculpture is misleading. There's some great examples of busts of Caligula where there are actually a few traces of paint and you can start to see a very different image. I think also, though, it's it's a very helpful area to see how Different modes of representation work in very unexpected ways. I mean, I've just been recently doing a bit of work on Nero and the images of Nero and his family. One of the most extraordinary images of Nero's mother, the one who came to a very sad end, is in black basalt. You're taking a black stone and you're making that 
the material out of which to create an image of the emperor's mother. Likewise, you can take an emperor like Septimius Severus from North Africa. We have no idea really what his ethnicity was, but he certainly counted North Africa as his own. And you present him in gleaming white marble, maybe painted, sometimes not perhaps, just like he's any other emperor. And I think the ancient world is a good place for thinking about the limits of racism, or rather, what does a society look like before it's racist in our terms? That's not to say the Romans were nice. They just were nasty in a different way from us. And they did not have the kind of knee-jerk hierarchy of race that we do, or that we have inherited. We hope we don't, but that we've inherited. And building off of that question, my colleague Sally asks, how does the West's tendency to academic definitions of philosophy as stemming almost exclusively from Greek and Roman or classical thought and viewing Asian, Indian, and Latin American traditions as either religion or archaeology slash anthropology <laughs> skew our fuller understanding of history and thought? Well, a Western Eurocentric history always skews our thought. Look, the important thing, I mean, and this is where debates about Western civilization and the classical tradition within Western civilization are really quite both important and dangerous. You know, because there is a, a shorthand tendency to say classics, Greeks and Romans equals the origin of Western civilization. That is, is one of the origins of Western civilization, but only one. And it doesn't take anything, really. A student of classics very quickly sees, if they've got their eyes open, that there are all kinds of other absolutely major uh, building blocks of what Western civilization is, you know, which is Egyptian, what we used to call Near Eastern, and more recently, Islamic. And it's also very clear that, you know, we need to stop kind of having that old-fashioned 19th century view, which, you know, puts white Western culture at the top of the hierarchy. You know, your colleague's right, everything else kind of, it becomes religion. Philosophy is what the Greeks do, and, you know, religion is what other people do. We've got to get over that. And, you know, I think things are moving in the right direction. I think you've, you've got to be realistic. I don't want to get rid of the study of Virgil. You know, I think if you say, why is Virgil important? Well, I think it's reasonable to say that every day since Virgil died at the end of the first century BC, every day someone's been reading the Aeneid, every single day. And that gives it a very particular place in the history of Western thought, but only one place. We've just got to get over it. And I don't think that means suddenly turning everybody who studies Virgil into somebody who studies Gilgamesh or whatever. We've just got to see that it's a more complicated world. The Greeks and Romans, one of the things they've taught us, we haven't always learned the lesson, is that the world's complicated. And if we follow their lesson, then we won't just study them. That's such a great way to look at it. What's next for you? Well, I'm retiring. I shall have a, occasionally have a morning off. I'm halfway through writing a book, which is really a follow-up to SPQR. The Twelve Caesars book is focused on art. It's the art of power. It's not a history book. As it were, look harder at the Roman Empire than I had a chance to do in SPQR, partly because I wanted in that earlier book, I, I wanted to kind of get a sense of what the narrative arc of ancient history in Rome was. And you know, the truth is that by the time you get to Augustus, after that, for several hundred years, 
nothing much happens. Don't tell anybody. I mean, of course, all sorts of things happen. All sorts of things happen. But the system remains the same. Old colleague of mine used to say, if you'd gone to sleep in 1 BC and woken up in 200 AD, you'd have recognised the world around you. If you'd gone to sleep in 300 BC and woken up in 100 BC, you wouldn't recognise the world around you. So there's a, a kind of sense that you don't have that frantic kind of change. And most people have tended, and I fully understand why, and I've done it myself, to tell the story then of what happens in the Roman Empire through the biographies of individual emperors. You know, and it's very appealing. And in some ways, that's embedded in the 12 Caesars. You know, Caligula was a monster and Claudius was a bit old and Nero was a, you know, a liar player. I wanted to say, can we actually tell that story without so much stress on the biography? Who wants to lose the lurid details? But what are those lurid details really doing? How can we use them to tell history of a different sort? Because actually, the Roman Empire lasted and continued and appears, you know, for all its faults and all its brutality to have flourished, even when people were told psychopaths were on the throne. Well, how does that add up? And so I'm wanting to think much more generally about what the emperor did, what any emperor did, you know, what did he do when he get up? Did he work hard? How did he make law? What did he have for dinner? Who shaved him? You know, what are the things that these emperors hold in common? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. I'm really looking forward to reading that book. Is there anything you want to add? I'm absolutely fine. I suppose you know, I'll just say one more thing again, which is that I really do hope that what the book does is open up things for people. And, you know, there are scenes that were painted again and again and again and decorate every gallery wall that you go to, which are now just not recognised. Some of those like, what did the Emperor Augustus see in the sky on the day that Jesus was born? Some of those one can decode very easily and I think add to people's pleasure. I mean, so by saying that there are black holes here and there's all kinds of things we don't know, I'm not meaning to make this more difficult. I'm wanting to let people get in there and explore for themselves and recognise a few of these guys, you know, always spot Nero fiddling while Rome burns. <laughs> I hope it sort of adds an extra dimension and, and also turns the sort of the Cinderella's of the art museum, you know, the tapestries and the coins into the stars. Mary Beard, thank you so much for joining us today on Poured Over. The new book is 12 Caesars and it's out now. Thank you very much. It's been a ball. <laughs> Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 